Hello and welcome to A New Nation, the podcast discussing the ideas that matter. I'm Nathan Sparding. I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, the wonderful Nick Ward. Hello, happy new year. Welcome to the future, 2021, yay. We've already done a new year podcast. What, have we? Yeah, I've only been off for a couple of weeks because of COVID. It feels like it feels like a million years. We should apologise for there being such a long break. We had a we had a man down situation mm. where um, poor Nathan and fourteen was struck with the dreaded lurgy. And, and as has, you can probably hear from my voice, it's still not actually fully recovered. So hard. I, I, although I do quite enjoy my new raspy tone. It is quite raspy. We mm. a good basis now. Exactly. Do you want to introduce our guest, Nick? Yeah, but I'm really, do you know what? I just suddenly panicked. I was really worried that I'm not, I don't know how to say your last name, James. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, that's that's why, why I asked you to introduce him. I was hoping Nathan would do it because I suddenly thought, wait a minute, I don't think I've ever said that out loud. And so I don't know how to do <laughs> So James, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, and sure. Completely normal. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, my name is James McEnany. Um People, well, if they know me at all, but people would uh, probably know me uh, either as that the FOI guy, um, I suppose, or a journalist and sort of commentator in Scottish education. Um, and I'm also a lecturer and a former secondary school teacher. McEnany was exactly how I was going to say it in my head. Of course head. it was. Of course yes. it was. <laughs> <laughs> We're all clear. Um, so it's so great for us to have James on the podcast today because there's loads of stuff. Um, because of our break, we've got lots of political news to go through, and we know that James has lots of opinions on that as well, which <laughs> is exciting for us to talk about and lots of analysis. But then also, um, it's a really good opportunity for us to ask some big questions about what is going on with Scottish education, particularly in the light of the pandemic. But I've seen lots of interesting things flying about. And as someone that was previously quite involved in the education sphere, some of it has very much intrigued me and some of it has very much confused me. So it will be good to try and seek some clarification from you, James, if you've got it. You might not. You might end up saying, <laughs> I don't know why they've done that either. It's bad. That's but. probably quite likely. But yes, we'll give it a go. <laughs> Give it a go, and that's the important thing. And right. before we get to the um, meat of our podcast, it's just important to note that uh, none of us, we're all here representing ourselves, sometimes not even our own opinions, and we'll be throwing in some um, some suggestions and questions that um, that are against even our own opinions, just to start the debate. And the views that we all express are not that of our employers or anyone that we are connected to. So what are we going to kick off with in the news today? Well, because there's some big news. So I, I, I think originally I had us to talk about some labour stuff to start with, but I think that's, maybe that maybe has been demoted. That has, <laughs> that has been demoted to fourth place, like their electoral results. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> went out the cheap burns already. Wow. Okay. Um, this is what you get for recording on a Monday. So I suppose the big news today is that um, Joanne Cherry, MP, QC, um, Chief Litigator-in-Chief, uh, <laughs> has been demoted from being on the SMP front bench. I don't even know what position she had on the front bench. Um, she was the SMP's spokesperson or shadow home secretary. Right. And Core so the, affairs and stuff, yeah. the yeah. official reason that she is not a team player, mm -hmm. um, 
But the unofficial reason appears to be slightly more complicated. It does indeed. And um, our listeners will remember uh, Nicola Sturgeon's video that was posted um, over the, the, was it Friday night or over the week? It, it feels like it was so long ago now because so much has happened since. When, yeah. when did all the SNP young people, uh, young LGBT people start resigning? Yeah, so that was over the course of, of last week. Um, Joanna Cherry shared our support for someone that um, some people might have accused as being um anti-Semitic and anti-trans um, people and homophobic and uh, all the likes. Um, she tweeted her support um, for that person um, who she's previously um, funded campaigns for. Um, and then um, that started the barrage of people um, criticising Joanna for doing that, but also um, a lot of people, a lot of um, quite senior although the senior's the wrong word, but quite prominent young activists in the SNP leaving. People that I never thought for a million years would yeah. be thinking about leaving the that SNP. That was that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was people that, you know, had been seen campaigning with the First Minister. They're out campaigning come rain, hail, snow or um, sunshine. Um, and I think that was what made it the most shocking, was this wasn't just people, you know, your Twitter activists saying, oh, I'm leaving. This was like the almost the core of the sort of 30 and under group of um, SNP activists had decided that enough was enough. And that led to, to Nicola Sturgeon's uh, video message, then followed by a, a statement from the party's business convener and, and national secretary, a uh, deputy leader, sorry. Um, and, and now it comes to Monday and... Joanna Cherry is no longer on the front bench. And I think I think it's also important to, to place this in the context that Joanna Cherry has been someone that people have seen traditionally, traditionally is not the right word, but have, have seen as someone advocating um, less progressive views towards trans rights than others might. And I think that um, that issue in itself has become a dividing line within the SNP between two camps. Uh, one camp I suppose the younger, more progressive, uh, I, I would argue more inclusive um, side than another camp, one which pushes for more hardline independence policies, who wants more unilateral action and doesn't have faith in Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and I suppose that's the other side. And so because, because Joanna Cherry has been putting herself, as, well, pitching herself, I suppose, as the leader in waiting, maybe she hasn't, maybe you guys disagree with that, but um, she has naturally become associated with that more right wing, is it fair to say right wing camp? Certainly right, right of... Um... Right of the other camp, as you yeah. say. I mean, and yeah, I mean, if, if you're talking about here the the the, the particular, I mean, I would I've used the word fringe, um, but the particular kind of fringe of that side of the independence movement, if you want to use the word movement erroneously, um, then yeah, I think it's certainly fair to say. I mean, people like me have been arguing for ages that, that ultimately this is the, the sort of social conservative side of the independence movement. And to be fair, I mean, in in any in any sort of like sort of social change that that looks like this kind of push for independence, there's no reason that you wouldn't expect to see much the same sort of makeup as as all of society and as fundamentally in the in the campaign. Now, the, the campaign for independence became more associated with more of a sort of left wing campaign than a right wing campaign for, for for numerous reasons. But there are plenty of people who want independence, for example, for very very different reasons from the ones that I do. 
you know that there's there's no two ways about that and there's not a particular problem with that in and of itself um but there comes a point at which with the with the conflict that seems to have that seems to have arisen is isn't even a new one either i mean i remember back in 2016 um at the last at the last election being a rise candidate back then and being sort of involved in in all that kind of kind of side of things and there was this sort of even then there was this kind of feeling that um certain uh, divisions or or certain things about the campaign for independence had to be put on the back burner and we saw that in 2016 where there was this sort of increasing sense that if any sort of conflict was perceived to arise between the push for independence and a push for a more socially just scotland then the former had to come before the latter is this is is this partly the problem that the SNP aren't a real political party? Like, like they're not. They're a vehicle for independence, right? So you pour everything into this vehicle, and what what that means is the vehicle can only keep going for so long because they don't work on that kind of fuel. Uh, do you view the SNP as a political party? Is that the way that you analyse the SNP? And there probably is a lot to be said for actually saying, well, no, that really doesn't encompass what we're looking at here. If you try to analyze the SNP purely as a political party, you're going to miss a pretty massive chunk of what's um, of what's going on there. And I suppose, yeah, so, ult- you know, there, are, there is always going to come a point at which, you know, big tent tensions are going to become a problem for you. I suspect that uh, people in charge of the SNP would have rather hoped it wasn't right now, but that'd be the case whenever it happens. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, because this seems to have come to a head now in, in a place where the SNP couldn't really be any higher in the polls. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Couldn't really, you know, 13 years in government, going into another parliamentary election that looks like they're going to get a majority, that looks like they're going to be able to deliver a referendum, that looks like they probably win the referendum. Yeah. And so I, I think back to, um, you know, before 2014 when um, there was the equal marriage debate and there was people in the SNP that were against gay marriage. You know, there was people that are in the current cabinet of the Scottish government mm-hmm. that voted against the against equal marriage. Even that wasn't big enough to create this, what we've got at the moment. It, it feels very strange. I think there's another dividing line, though, that's not about whether you're socially conservative or socially progressive, this is about who's in charge. It's, yeah. it's got to be about who's in charge. And, right. and for a right. number of the people, a number of the people that are falling into this, you know, anti-trans, seemingly anti-trans, seemingly wanting independence above all else, so everything else should wait, there, there's almost a perfect line down the middle between Nicola Sturgeon supporting trans rights wanting independence when it happens and when it comes towards the other group of people who want another leader in charge um, and are anti-trans and want independence now. Yeah, um, Nicola Sturgeon is the leader of a party that, as you say, has been in government for what is basically forever in political terms. Nicola Sturgeon's government, like, I mean, what was it? When, when was it they won the first election? 2007? 2007. So in 2007, I, I, at 34 years old, in 2007, I was still in university. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is how we're talking about. I was like, still in high that. school. We don't need that. It's, it's a huge amount of time. It's, and 
you know, again, we don't need to kind of carry ourselves on here. It's not as if they've won every single one of those elections because this is the most glorious, the competent government anybody's ever seen, right? That is very demonstrably not the case. But as Nick was saying, this is not really just a political party and there's there are, there's more going on in Scotland just now. There's the, the sort of points you were making are definitely true. There's a massive, massive generational shift. And it's an interesting one because that massive generational shift is, on the one hand, an enormous advantage for the SNP and for and for the pro-independence side. You look at any poll that breaks down answers by age and you see the exact same thing. Young people support independence to a level that is just beyond, beyond overwhelming. But one of the things that I tweeted um, about the, sort of the same with Nicholas Sturgeon's video that came out, so I spent most of my time, people know me mostly doing the kind of journalism, but actually I spend the vast majority of my time teaching. And I spend a lot of that time teaching people who are aged kind of 16 to 25. And I, it's really difficult to uh, to overemphasize just how different the social attitudes seem to be to me. And it, in, in a really, really striking way to the point where like this, this whole thing this whole, you know, again, I'm using the air quotes, you know, trans debate, a phrase I absolutely hate because you do not debate people's right to exist. But you know what I'm talking about? And the extent to which it just doesn't even really seem to register with the generation below mine is is remarkable. And I suppose it's just because, like, the way it looks to me, certainly when I, when I speak to people, it's just as if, like, to them, homophobia is just regarded as, you know, as, as like racism, which is not to say there are no homophobes in the same way as not to say there are no racists, but broadly speaking, social attitudes move on. Um, transphobia is just seen as part of that. This is what the thing Nicola Sturgeon was getting at in her message. She made a point of making that. I think to kind of, to, I think you know, to kind of to draw that line to make that to make that link. There is a big generational shift that has happened in Scotland, and one of the things about that is that. One, it's large, one of the major catalysts for it has been the opening of the Scottish Parliament in 1999. So people at our age, for example, don't really... I was born in 86, right? So I mean, I was teen, early teenagers then, right? People at our age and younger do not know a Scotland that does not have its own part. They do not know how to and do not need to conceive of a Scotland as an entity that has no way to express itself and to have, and to have its own voice. And that fundamentally changes things. You know, Scotland is a country still dominated by basically the same, you know, middle class, middle aged voices as any other place would have been, as it would always have been in the past. And given the enormous change that was sparked by things like the opening of the parliament and the way that's manifested itself in the country, it just seems a huge loss to me that we've never found a way to actually sort of tap into all that or, or to allow those, that sort of generation to become much more sort of wholly part of sort of civic and political Scotland, which I still Did feel dominated by the wrong people. The, you said something interesting before we were recording, annoyingly, um, and then I had to say, James, stop speaking, we're not recording. <laughs> but we, <laughs> you said that um, you said that you felt like the internet had effectively destroyed traditional class-based politics and Part I thought it was a very interesting thing. What, what, why do you say that? Which it feels like quite a big statement. It's, I don't think it's that the, the internet has has done it, but I think, you know, in this PhD I shall, but uh, I think that you can look at the emergence of, particularly of social media, which is a different kind of, even that's a different kind of internet from the internet, say, like when we were young. Mm. Um, the way in which young people interact with 
the internet and engage with each other on it is is different even from we would be doing the first generation to have that remember msn messenger and stuff you know um as the kind of early point but yeah but the but it's it's changed quite markedly now i think the way that they engage with it. and it's because the dominant force of the internet is social media and social media allows for and of course you know monetizes and exploits but allows for the making of a different kind of set of connections than was previously possible so when we were 14 15 you know um the people that you were able to connect with essentially were you know people at school People at school, people who live near you, folk you might interact with at, you know, your football or something like that. Because you were limited to your socioeconomic bubble, weren't you? Yeah. So social media flips that on its head. It allows you to connect with somebody anywhere in the world. But it has quite radically, I think, and I'm open to being corrected by somebody who knows more about this than I do, but it seems, I think, to have quite radically altered the way in which young people perceive themselves within the world. Mm. And I think it's important. And I, I think well, I'd like we to read this to understand that. I think I think we understand it because I think the thing is, it's not difficult to understand that the way in which you see you you see the world and interpret the world alters the way in which you think about it. We know that the way that the language people use alters the way in which they think to a very basic level. So you, so we know this is the case. We know that if you if you view things through a different lens, then your understanding of them will be shifted and therefore the opinions that you form as a consequence will, will, will change. So it wouldn't make sense if the, if social media becoming the sort of dominant, sort of not only even dominant kind of form of the internet, but in many ways, primary means by which people communicate with one another. I mean, like, for example, I mean, I, I know you kind of, all right, over the last kind of couple of years and we've met each other once. Yeah, coffee. Um, coffee a couple of years once, but we had sections. And I, I said, I know you fairly well. And there's loads and loads of people like that for every individual because that's mm. how we can make. But I think that maybe changes the way people view their place in the world because it is easier to make those connections, for example, based mm. on the things you believe are the kind of things that you want to see, not simply based on geographical proximity. It's so taking that back to the to the issue because I think that's interesting. So what we saw then on Twitter happening was a whole raft of young people um, resigning from the SNP because they no longer felt. But this is interesting, right? Because it wasn't as if the SNP as a political party had taken a position or or it failed. It, 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 no, no, no. It was perceived to have failed to have taken mm. a position, which is exactly the same thing. Yeah, right. It's that whole thing. It's that whole thing about you know silence only ever benefits the oppressor. Um, and but if you leave, do you not let the oppressor win? So if all the good progressive people there's go, always, there's, there's always that argument. What's funny is I resigned from the SNP when I was like 18, right? I, I, I'm one of these people that was young and, and didn't like, you know, a statement that wasn't made but was implied. So at the time, Brian Souter got knighted. There we go. And Alex Salmon oh. said that he was a national hero for what he's done for buses. Oh. And to me... That was so against what I believed because he is a homophobe. So f for the leader of the SNP at the time to be calling Brian Souter a national hero, I resigned from the party. Um, and I did so in a very similar fashion to what happened. It just so happened that I was the only one at the time because there wasn't as many of us. There wasn't as many of us. And... Um, 
yeah, clearly I was the only sort of idealist at the time. Um, so that, so you know, I, I've I've been watching this happen through a lens of having been there. Like I was there seven years ago, whenever it was. I think it was 2012. So but you know, you rejoined. Eight, I did rejoin, but you have to wait two years before you're allowed to rejoin again. It's, it's a tipping point thing, isn't it? As well, so mm-hmm. you're saying about you know these people. You know, if if you leave, then then that lot win. And, and fundamentally, yes, that that um, that is the position. But and that's why this is so dangerous thing for mm-hmm. the SNP because as as Nathan said, this isn't a crowd of like, you know, um, you know, oh well we joined and aren't really all that active. You're talking about there are people who left the SMP mm-hmm. that you I mean, even I, I was looking at and thinking like, I mean I know these people relatively well, but genuinely surprised yeah. even given the circumstances. Right. And I think what's I'm interesting is too much as well as some of the, the the you know the arguments thrown against the fact that Nicola made a statement after some people left. They're throwing about this forty thousand people have left the SMP in the last two years well there's there's a difference between not renewing your membership yeah. and actively especially, submitting... after, especially after a huge surge in yeah, membership remember, remember the hydro and all that nonsense who exactly. ever thought that was going to last you know so so there's a difference between you know people not renewing their membership therefore mm. not no longer being members and people actively writing to the party to ask them to resign their membership like but, but that is the principle are you not like, is it not the same as, like, vacating the battlefield? Are you not basically saying, then I give over to you the no. mechanisms of the party. I no. give over to you the NEC and the conference spaces, and you can decide the policy because I absolve myself from this. But by doing so, the baddies win. No. They get what they wanted. No. Because there comes a point at which you need to accept that you staying and saying, I'm fighting to make things better is complicity. You know, this is like that argument about, you know, like uh, labor lords who are all going to go in there and gonna fight the system from the inside and stuff like that, right? And it's bollocks. That feeling of people not being, now this is something, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heterosexual. I've, this isn't something I've, that, you know, experienced in the way that's been sort of described here. But what people were talking about, that was what really struck me was this, this feeling that the SNP wasn't a, a safe party for them anymore. And I don't, and that doesn't mean that necessarily people are, are sitting, you know, feeling like, you know, they're about to be assaulted or anything. But this this feeling that to remain part of the SNP is ultimately going to be harmful to them because of who they are, because that's because that's the position that they feel that they've they've been put in, is is genuinely staggering. Um, perhaps and uh, horrific, but. Perhaps we need to get someone that actually left the SNP onto the podcast. I would, I would love that. That would be very interesting. Discussion. Yeah. Because I think, you know, the, the problem is whenever you're in a political party, right, there are compromise. Like, I'm not saying yeah. you should compromise something like people's identity. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. that whatsoever. But what I am saying is that, like, sometimes to get to a place that you need want to get to, you have to go through a political journey through that party. And I, and I worry sometimes that sometimes people's first instinct is to go, well, I'm not going to to take part in this because I don't agree with the with the whole concept of the debate, which I get. But I also fear that what you also do is you also absolve yourself of responsibility to, to fight it, but you also give over the like the victory to the to the people that you don't want to. Do. But but remember, Nick, this has been happening for like nearly two years. I think yeah. people have been slowly leaving the SNP because of the perceived inaction. Um, you know, the, the GRA reform that was in the manifesto um, has not been happening. Um, then there was a consultation, then it was delayed, then there was another consultation, then That's it was right. delayed. Then, you know, the, when, when you actually think about that timeline, 
there has been so many opportunities where people have felt let down and then they've decided to stick it out because they thought right so then you add those two consultations then you think about the nec elections where not a majority by any means but a number of known people that are hostile to to the lgbt young movement and um trans people when they were getting elected onto the nec then where is the change then you know there's 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 even more inaction there's there is a breaking point for some there people there comes a there comes a point when the levy breaks yeah. and i think this is the issue here that I, I think that's I think that's what happened here. I think finally a group of very very politically active um, and, and active in the party, you know, people have decided that this is past the point at which they think it either that they can fight it or that it, or that it should be that, that you know. Is it, and this is what I'm really interested actually to, say, to hear from maybe some of the people who left to understand like is the feeling simply one of outright disgust? Is the feeling that actually the SNP is beyond saving? Is the feeling that the only way to draw attention to all of this was through this kind of action? Because in fairness, this is what's finally done it once again. It's, once again, the kids are going to save us. You know the thing and that's it worked, really though, didn't it? It did also work yeah. because nothing was happening. Yeah. And then they did this, and then Nicholas Sturgeon issued that statement that they've been waiting for. The, kid, the kids are all right, man. Had, was, was fired, so it worked. You're right, it worked. The, ki- the kids are all right, and that's the thing the here. And, right. so, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this generation are cracking. And then so you end up in a situation where Nicholas Sturgeon, a very, very, um, I don't think it's controversial to say, you know, sort of cautious politician, but, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon releases that video, knowing fine well what some of the ramifications were going to be, you know, um, knowing fine well it was going to upset, you know, wings over Bathland and all that kind of mob of the, of the party and the independence campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but and, and there is an element, I mean, let, you know, be completely honest here, I, I should preface this by saying any people that I know and have a great deal of respect for know much more about this than me, tell me they still regard Nicola Sturgeon as a, a, a trans ally. Um, and I certainly, um, my personal feeling towards that is that I, I don't doubt that she is. What we are looking at here is a bunch of largely young people who have simply reached a point at which they think that it is no longer safe for them there and it's past the tipping point. And so actually all they can safely do now is walk away. Then I think we need to, we need to respect that. If, however, what we're looking at is a group of young people who have taken this action knowing that if they do it properly then they can for- this is the only way they can force some kind of change i have enormous respect for that although it's very very sad that they've they've had mm-hmm. to do it i suspect the answer is probably somewhere in the middle of that certainly uh, as i say the levy felt like it broke and the question now is you know what happens in the flood i suppose so we've spent a long time uh, <laughs> talking about the, uh, the SNP. Um, we got That's a bit so deeper boring. than we got a bit deeper than I was expecting, but um, a useful discussion. Um, I don't think we're going to spend as long talking about the Labour Party. But Nick, do you want to tell us what's happening in the Labour Party as a resident Labour Party member? Let's put some out today, aren't they? They are today. Yeah, glorious, glorious. The results that they are. Let's not talk about them. Though. Not bad to be here. Let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk about the leadership. So, since our last podcast, um, Richard Leonard has resigned. Um, after was that, was that that was an air quotes resigned, wasn't there it? Was, it wasn't an air quotes <laughs> resigned, but apparently, apparently, it maybe it should have got some air quotes. 
um, because Keir Starmer may have had some influence in this. Yes, may have. Um, although Richard Leonard says that he thought about it over Christmas when he came to his decision. But then I don't know why then he waited like three weeks. But anyway, <laughs> um, so um, Richard Leonard um, resigned and we're having a leadership election within the Labour Party with two very interesting candidates. Mm. We've got Anna Sarwar, who um, is standing on a position of um, talk about the things that matter most to people and who's standing on a position of the next parliament should be a rebuild parliament after COVID and all this independence chat. You just need to chill it out. It shouldn't be our priority. Stop distracting <laughs> everyone. And then you've got Monica Lennon, who has taken a slightly different position, who says, yeah, we should rebuild, but we've got to accept the reality of the situation, which is that if people in Scotland vote for majority uh, independence parties, then the people of Scotland have a right to a referendum. Yes. Which should, by the way, just for the record, be a completely uncontroversial thing to say. But it is absolutely remarkable that a Labour leadership uh, contender can stake out a position and clearly stake out a position here, separate herself very, very much from her opponent on the basis of, I'm quite fond of democracy. I mean, this is, this is quite this is a, of a place to have ended up in, realistically, isn't it? For the Labour Party, it's, it's, it's interesting what um, what you guys were saying before about different generations. So obviously, I, I've been uh, being a list candidate recently um, as a bit of a hobby, and I've been talking to quite a lot of members, and um, but clearly not as many as I should have been talking to. Realistically, <laughs> I did not do well. Um, but but um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that there was clearly a bit of a generational divide. On members that I talked to based on the constitutional issue mm-hmm. where I can believe that yeah younger members were much more flexible open willing to engage with it I would agree with what you said before James about sort of accepting the democratic mandate of the people <laughs> um where there was an old there was another generation another group of people they weren't all older I, I should be careful about that because there was there was obviously old people on both sides and young people on both sides there was another group of people who were very much I'd say you could almost break it down to, into to broad things. There's the union or nothing people. So there's the people that are just like, I am a unionist and that is the most important thing and the SNP are friggin' evil. Mm-hmm. There's the the much more reasonable best of both worlds people, which I would say is the majority of them, which is the, you know, actually I think that Scotland can get a good deal within the union. I think it gives us this, we don't lose that. So actually yeah. it's fine. And then there's the people who are more... Um, I would say not caring that much. So they they would say, actually, you know, whether we're independent or whether we're part of the union, we need to make sure that we're arguing what's best for people in Scotland. And then there's the final group of people who are, you know, pro-independence, who who, who are a small group, because let's be honest, most of them have left for the SNP. Yes. And then left the SNP recently. Yes. (laughs) So the the, the fact, yeah. But so I just think that even then, if you consider that the vast majority of people who probably were in the other two camps have already left. The fact that there is such division even within what is left within the Labour Party is in itself quite interesting. Yeah, I'm not hugely surprised to hear that, actually, when you say you've been speaking to people and, that you know, obviously not a hard and fast rule, but broadly speaking, you've got younger members who are members of the Labour Party, might not even be pro-independence, but are certainly not, uh, you know, rabidly opposed to it because these are the people from the generation, basically anybody who are aging younger. 
um, is far more likely to be in that kind of category. And then you have the people who are old enough to remember Labour being completely dominant in Scottish politics. And there's a fair amount amongst that kind of crowd still, even now, all these 13 years on, that is, that is bitterness. You feel it? Yeah, there is still this sense that, you know, all these people who vote for the SNP aren't doing it right. You know, we're not voting properly um, because they're not because young people and working class people are supposed to vote for Labour. And because Labour is still, still never really reckoned with this, um, that you end up in this position just now. So, yeah, you're going to have Anna Sarwar, who is going to, I suspect, probably win. Um, who is going to wrap up that kind of, you know, um, anti-independence vote so much as it still exists in Labour, the very, very hyper-unionist vote, which is not a road that Labour has got any real future down, um, as well as a whole bunch of people who call themselves moderates but are moderate on only certain things. Um, and on the other hand, yeah, I'm not at all surprised that maybe younger people are maybe more likely to be supporting a position of the kind espoused by by uh, by Monica Lennon. The two candidates themselves are quite interesting. Monica Lennon strikes me as a particularly effective mm. MSP. Um, this is one of the things that started um, coming up when she declared was a broad range of people from different parties saying how great it was that Monica, Lennon, yeah. that, that Monica Lennon was running. And she then, touched. but I thought it was really interesting that, you know, loads of people from the SNP, the Greens, um, and, and, you know, people of no party coming out in favour of Monica Lennon running, that she'd bring a breath of fresh air to the Labour Party. I believe that too. I've worked with Monica on uh, on a lot of things. Um, and I've not met any people with, anybody I've spoke to, um about her certainly um I, i'm struggling to find people with a bad word to say yeah. about her but her opponent then used that as the reason why people shouldn't vote for her because yes oh snp want monica there then there must be a yeah. reason for it it's like remember uh remember what hannah sarwar said remember what his supporters said Remember, Jim, remember Jim Murphy's guys. Famously, it was what many. It wasn't just one. Of the party said, "I don't it think that's a just fair one. thing." It wasn't just that. one. There was loads of people tweeting, retweeting SNP activists who had said, "Oh, this is great that Monica's running." There was well, a lot of Labour people that supporting Anna Sarwar that said. Look. Well, they're they're nincompoops, aren't they? Because the only way you win elections is to win those people back. Well, exactly. So that's they, what I've thought. Anna Sarwar has the same baggage now that Anna Sarwar had last time. Anna Sarwar cannot be First Minister because you can't be First Minister while sending your kid to private school. End of. You just can't. You cannot be the First Minister of Scotland leading the government, leading everything with, you know, national education, all of that, while your kid is in a private school. So as it stands right now, Anna Sarwar cannot... If, if Anna Sarwar through some absolutely astonishing cosmic miracle, right, probably involving Thanos and things going horribly, horribly wrong, Anna Sarwar becomes leader and Labour become uh, the biggest party and Labour win the election. Ha, 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 ha. In that situation, can Anna Sarwar become First Minister and actually spend four or five years as First Minister doing things like fighting for education while he's spending, what is it, 13 grand a year? 
to send away to send away to private school, something in that kind of ballpark. There's absolutely no way you can't. You you just cannot. This will take us back to all sorts of other things. There was the issue with his family business and all the shares that he didn't get rid of and put into a trust so for his wait kids. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute, James. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. So let's go back to your first question. Your first point there was. Can Anusara be the first minister of Scotland while sending his kids to private no. school? No. Technically speaking, the answer is yes. No. Like, like legally, <laughs> he can be the first minister. Legally and speaking, fact, yes. Le- legally there are many. There are many. That's happen. I think there are many. There are many prime ministers who have sent their kids to private school. Now, do I think he should send very, his kids to private very school? Very, no. very, very different situation. Very but, different but, situation. But do, should he, should he send his kids to private school? No, I don't think he should. Do do I ever? So private schools are unethical. So the leader, the person who wants to become leader, party leader, is therefore surely engaging in unethical behaviour. So, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. But I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to use the Diane Abbott defence, and the Diane Abbott defence when she sends her kids to private school is, I don't think that they're right, but I have to do what I, the best that I can for my kid, and so I've made this choice. That's I'd fine. also say if you want to be happy, that's I'd also just talk about Diane Abbott defence though as well, is that it isn't just his choice, like his wife will, I assume, have strong opinions about where where they send their kids to. Uh Uh-huh. So... I but nonetheless, if, if me and my wife send my kid to private school because she really, 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 really wants to, act, but at the end of the day, right, I'm still part of that. And funnily enough, it's not going to happen. If you send your kids to private school, you are paying money into a system that exists for the purpose of maintaining social inequality. These are, these are Europe, Europe values, James, not necessarily the values of the nation. And that's fine. And like, that's fine. If, but that's fine. If Anna Star and the Labour Party's values are not of you know equality and social justice, cool, that's okay. But he's going to have to say that publicly, and I suspect that might be something of a barrier for him. Well, I think <laughs> one, I don't think you like so. I think there's a couple things there. I think that you know equality and social justice are the Labour Party's values, and I'm sure that he would say that they are his values. So I would be interested in actually hearing his his like how he weighs up you know those values with the decision to send his kids to private school. So, but but. <laughs> But I wonder if this is the kind of thing that gets people in the sort of political chattering classes all hit up and that actually most people, most ordinary people out there don't care as much as we care. They might not, but give it an election campaign. And actually, no, Steve and that, see on this. No, not in this kind of one. There's lots and lots of things that the public don't really care about. Right. And the public are right about that because an awful lot of what politicians talk about is meaningless. Um and actually, there are things that might even be important they don't care about. I suspect if you asked 100 random people in the street about the Alex Salmon Nicola Sturgeon inquiry, they'd look at you like you were daft, right? Because mm. people don't really, really care. However, I think you stick this into an election campaign where Anna Sarwar comes out and says, the Scottish government is letting everybody, we need all this inequality is a problem, we must do something about it. And every single time he does it, someone turns around and says, "That's cracking." So, how much do your how much are your school fees? The fact you've even got thirteen grand to throw around at the school fees, you know. Um, so that's how much are your school fees? So why are you doing that? Aren't private schools wrong though? Oh, you don't think that it ends up in the same rabbit hole every single time? And it's only one example of that kind of rabbit hole too. But Anna Sarwar represents to the sort of centrist part of Labour this idea of continuity, this idea that things haven't actually fundamentally changed. 
that really, you know, we are not out of touch. It's the children who are wrong. And um, if we just kind of stick to things, then things will be all right. Anna Sarwar could have been Labour of the Scottish leader of the Scottish Labour Party 15 years ago. See, well, I, I, I don't think that's what he does represent. So I think he represents something different, but not necessarily that different. I think what he represents is actually uh, like the the right wing of the Labour Party's yearning for professionalism. So what he oh, definitely a big part of that, yeah. Branding that they that they prefer. I think that's that is the thing that he stands for. But, but even that, that's still part of that same kind of phenomenon, and still that part of you know we need the adults in charge because like, everything else is going wrong. Um, but there definitely has something to that. Yeah, that, you know, he, he's the proper professional, the safe pair of hands. But it's up to Scottish Labour who they want to elect as leader. This is absolutely up to them. So All I would say Scottish Labour is that they have spent the last 15 years with their head in the sand, refusing to accept that Scotland has changed. So who do we think, before we, we take a break, because we've been we've been at our news session section for yeah. quite a long time. We're not going to have that, lo- that much time to talk about our big questions on education. Our final bit on the Labour leadership, who do we think will win, Nick? I honestly don't know. You know, I, I think I think what I think there's a couple of things. So I think what what James has been saying has been looking at the negatives, but I think there's a couple <laughs> of positive things as well. I think one of the things that's been really good is I think the quality of discussion debate that I've seen them having within the party has been really positive. And I think both of their regard for each other has been really nice. So actually they've been really respectful, they haven't attacked each other. I think they're also, they're also both very capable. I, mean, I should probably say that, like, I, I think there's a massive, massive issue with Anna Sarwar as a candidate. Um, insurmountable issues in terms of being leader of Scottish Labour and ultimately First Minister, which genuinely cannot happen in his current position. I don't doubt for a second Anna Sarwar is, is an extremely capable individual. There's, there's absolutely no question of that. And the same goes for Monica Lennon. Like, no matter who they end up with, they're getting a somebody who is capable of doing the job in all that kind of sense. So... Back to my positive. See, you were you were nearly positive there, James. You nearly got to the end of that with like nah, you can't leave it at that, you know. Not enough, is it? Um, but but yeah. So I, I honestly don't know. And um, there's really good people arguing for both candidates. Um, for me, I really hope that we do move on the constitutional question. I I I agree that what with some of what James has been saying. I, I do think that we need to, you know, we need to accept what the world is now and where we're at. And we need to be a party for democracy, not against democracy. Uh, James, who do you think is going to win? Um, probably Anna Sarwar. Only because I'm a cynic. All right. Who do you think is going to win, Nathan? Um, oh, I think, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I think there's an, an, an annoyance thing of, um, you know, who I think, I think Anas will end up winning. But I would, I think for, for all intents and purposes, it would be much better if Monica won. So let's take a break just now and we'll be back with um, our big questions on education with uh, James McCann. With our guest, James, uh, who (laughs) will be uh, helping us answer our big questions. Hello and welcome back to A New Nation, discussing ideas that matter. My name is Nick Ward, I'm joined with my co-host Nathan Sparling and with our wonderful guest star, James McEnany. So, how did I do it, James? How did I do yeah, it? Yeah, that's good. Yes. Uh, the knee. 
I'm a quick learner. Um, so now we come to our main topics of discussion, which is education in Scotland. Um, so James is quite famous in the education sphere, if you don't mind me saying so, James, um, for a couple of things. Um, I, I think potentially within the Scottish government may be considered to be their chief irritant, um, <laughs> someone who um, uses FOIs very successfully to gain information that the government um, potentially does not want to uh, share, particularly on education subjects. But you're also someone who writes a lot on education. You've been a teacher yourself. You still teach young people um, today. It, it, have I missed anything out there? No, no, that's about right, yeah. <laughs> Brill. So um, obviously education has become quite um, quite a, a hot topic issue with us in the pandemic, with lots of discussion about the vaccination of teachers, when schools will be going back, yeah. blended learning. Um, so I want to just start off by asking you a bit of a random question, whereas I noticed that one of my list uh, candidate colleagues, um, Barry Black, who you might know, yes. um, he um, is calling for the SQA to be shut down. Yes. What is that about? It's about being absolutely correct. Uh, <laughs> um, basically, <laughs> quite as it happens, quite a radical I, proposal. I, I do know Barry, but I've done a bit of work with Barry before and some uh, stories for the ferret, um, analysing some of the the data that I've been able to uh, pull out of the government. He's a very very good analyst. Um, and his thing about uh, you know demolishing the SQA. The SQA is a barrier to making Scottish education better and it is beyond the point of being reformable and as we've seen over the last year or so it doesn't in very very stark terms it doesn't even have the defense of being hyper competent because it is in fact the opposite um so the SQA the SQA effectively kind of dominates Scottish education in many ways. Um, we are still in this sort of perverse situation uh, whereby, like, the, the entire school curriculum, the, the whole idea of curriculum for excellence was that the whole school curriculum would be remade and reformed and, 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 and be made better. And then it reached, you know, the point of exams and it all just basically, you know, crashed into a wall because nothing really fundamentally changed. And that wasn't just down to the SQA, I have to say, that was down to the fact Scotland's a conservative country, but small c conservative country before it upset too many people. But um, the SQA is the organisation that is responsible for certifying qualifications in Scotland and it's not just school qualifications like mm -hmm. hires and national fives and national fours and further down it's also things like HNCs and all sorts of other it's massive endless list of things that it's supposed to cover and it does the job very badly it completely failed when the new qualifications were introduced um, it has continued to completely fail basically ever since then and is at the point now where the institutional arrogance of the SQA makes it near impossible for us to have serious conversations about actually improving Scottish education. So yes, um, I think it should be taken apart, if only because there come, you know, sometimes institutions and, and organisations just can't be reformed because of the institutional problems. Um, I don't think the SQA is reformable in its current uh, its current setup, and actually, I remain entirely unconvinced that a single organisation should try to do the massive range of stuff that it does. So it's kind of like saying that, like, 
when the SQA got the exam results last time wrong, and we know that it was fundamentally unfair because actually there were young people from disadvantaged schools being further disadvantaged by these ridiculous algorithms yes. that they had discovered. That was actually symptomatic of deeper, more ingrained that issues with the SQA. Very much the SQA being the SQA. What happened last year was the SQA decided, and John Spunny signed off on, um, the this idea of um, ranking and, and an algorithm. So what was going to happen is teachers who know their students would put in all the results and then if they didn't match up what the spreadsheets say they're supposed to, if the graphs don't look right, if the mighty bell curve has not been suitably appeased, then uh, th results would have to be changed. And those results were then changed on the basis of a school's past performance, which meant that if you were a very, very talented kid at a traditionally low achieving school, then the chances of you having your grades reduced were significantly higher than if you were a lazy middling student at a traditionally very high achieving school. But this was very much a product of the SQA simple, at its absolute core, refusing to trust teachers. So does not if, I just, if we just zoom out for a second and we look at like what's happened in Scottish education in the last sort of year and a half, like there seems to have been a series of what looks like to me to be quite significant cock-ups, right? Massive, so, massive cock-ups is what you're after there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, and like one after another after another, yeah. it feels like they've constantly been on the back foot, yep. whether that be about online learning or blended learning about going back to school or not going back to school about how um, the spaces should be run about providing adequate support for parents and homeschooling yep. um do you think john swinney should resign i thought i said john swinney should have resigned uh and after the, the last one if listen and i wasn't the only one saying that people who are much much uh more experienced than me, people who are very widely respected were saying the same thing. If an education secretary is not going to resign over the, and I say this very deliberately, the single biggest education scandal of the devolution era, if that's not enough to have a minister resign, nothing exists to have a minister. There are no more resigning issues. That's it. We have passed the point of resigning issues if John Swinney doesn't resign over what he did, and it was him, what because he's the minister, what he did to thousands and thousands of young people in the summer last year. It was utterly unconscionable. And worse than that, they had been warned again and again and again and again. You mentioned Barry Black. He had warned them again. I had written several times. There were lo teachers, every teacher I knew looked at the proposed system and said the exact same thing. Everybody knew it was coming. So there is no defense. Because if your defense is that uh, we knew it was coming and did it anyway, then you have deliberately set out to behave completely unethically towards a generation of young people. If your defense is we didn't know that was coming, then you are the sort of incompetent that people wouldn't be able to write into novels because nobody would believe that character was believable. So no matter which side of those two things you're on, you shouldn't be in your job. Um, so after last year, John Swinney should definitely have gone. The head of the SQA should definitely have gone. But they didn't because fundamentally, um, they didn't really believe they'd done anything wrong. What is it that systematic... So to me, it comes across like there's a systematic issue, regardless of one person. Um, John Swinney was put in the education brief as he was seen like the only person that was capable of <laughs> trying to yes. do... Trying to fix trying to fix the mess like that was yeah. that was why that he was, was appointed. Thing, yeah. uh -huh. um why then is a very capable um deputy first minister um who'd presided over you know years of balancing the budget um in in scotland 
what is so so perhaps it's, it goes back to the first thing you said about the SQA. Perhaps the the existence of the SQA is the barrier. What is but, but what 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 are the other systematic barriers? Because for for me, you know, a, a minister that gets given something where his experts are saying this is the way that we should do it. Now, regardless of Barry Black or or James McEnany, um giving them advice, like we know that advice is blocked by civil servants who want something to happen um if the advice is given to a minister and he signs it off to to my knowledge he's come out and apologized admitted it was wrong that's that's him admitting it was wrong um whether or not resigning is 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 the the end game i don't believe resigning impacts change in the way that um people think it does um but what is the systematic issue in Scottish so, education, that it means that yeah. someone as capable as John Swinney can well, can do it be, right. You need to watch the, the so the first thing about this is that we need to be careful about our sort of interpretations of John Swinney. John Swinney was the wrong choice for education secretary, and again, some people said at the time. Um, but the thing is, as much as John Swinney had spent ten years balancing the books, which was the whole thing that, that always came out, it turns out that beating spreadsheets into submission isn't quite the same thing as actually knowing how to improve an education system. So who, and who would you want in there? Part of the problem, well, part, part of the problem with John Swinney is that he was put in for the wrong. He was put in as the the hard man, the the general who'd go in and ram, get that education bill through, make change happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that is not the way to engage with the education system. So there's that on the one hand. Are there better people in the SNP? As I say, I'm not mass, I don't massively knowledgeable about the parliamentary party. I the only one that I know offhand that has genuine knowledge of the education system is Jenny Gilruth, who was a teacher. Um, but beyond, you know, but certainly I wasn't a minister at that point and they weren't going to give her the education brief. I understand why they gave it to John Swinney. I think it says an awful lot about the um, amount of faith they apparently have in other people that he's, nobody else has done it. But, but So John Swinney is part of the problem because John Swinney's over, over the, the period of being education secretary has actually consistently made that same mistake. It's not just been over the last year. John Swinney has consistently made, made this error of thinking that bullishness is the solution. This was the thing with the education. Do you think John Swinney is a bullish person? <laughs> yeah, I don't. In the, in, the, in, in the sense of interacting with the opposition in the, in the sort of the political theatre side, yes. Again, like I said about Anna Sauber, I, I know quite a few people um, who have either interacted with John Swinney as, as teachers, for example, or people who have worked with him directly and i am yet to meet a single human being who doesn't tell me that john swinney is very good a very very nice man works very very hard genuine and actually a lot of the, i say that's a very nice man as if it's some sort of insult who say that he's genuinely a really 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 good guy and i believe all of that but i even know people that fancy john swinney which i've never understood myself <laughs> but um just make clear that's not me <laughs> The point of making John Swinney Education Secretary wasn't about any of that. It was a, a, a huge chunk of that was about a show of strength. And it put the SNP in but, a position where they couldn't back down. I don't think and then they spent years making mistakes not back down. I don't think it was a parliamentary show of strength. To to my mind, and, and I think you you've sort of touched on it, the, the curriculum for excellence, getting that through, needed a show of parliamentary no, strength. CFE was already through that we were past that point. No, I know I know that I know I know that was already through. That needed a show of strength in parliamentary terms, and that's why Mike Russell was was a good person. Right. Um 
But what, so I was under the impression that Curriculum for Excellence was going to transform education for the better, right? Yeah. That that was that was my impression of it. If any teachers um, listen to this, by the way, <laughs> if we give you a second uh, to stop uh, laughing and then join back in. <laughs> um, but what it sounds like you you're saying is actually it's the the system of how qualifications are graded it's that's been man. that's it's been the barrier. Partly, so the SQA is an absolute disaster. It's an incompetent and arrogant organisation, and actually the entire way that we that we qualifications in this country is a mistake and we should redo it. However, there's all, some of the problems have originated also from John Swinney and the position that he is in, which has made it impossible for the SNP to back down on things. Part but, of the problem... But, but when is John Swinney... When is John so, Swinney not back down on things around... Well, this is the thing, well, because in the end, he's always had to eventually... But it's always been like the education bill, for example, if you go back and look at the, the timeline around that was ludicrous. It was obvious right from the start what the reaction was going to be. It was, no, 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 we're going ahead with it because by then that was the project. That was what had to be done. So there's there's parts of that. Uh, the curriculum, There's a there are massive problems with curriculum for excellence. It is far too bureaucratic the, for teachers listening to anything like that or any parents who've been driven through this. It operates on the basis of these experiences and outcomes which simply do not work. Um, there's not enough support for teachers. It was introduced at a time of austerity, but it was designed at, for a time of plenty. So there's a lot wrong with the curriculum. Education Scotland is Scotland's large education body. It is a combination of the body supposed to support teaching and learning and the inspectorate. Mm. Um, if you believe that you need to have an expectorate like HMIE, which I don't, but if you believe you need to have that, you can't have it as part of the same organisation. Education Scotland is now far, far too big. It's subsumed in a couple of organisations. It's also incompetent. Um, it's very, very good at sending out emails and uh, making, you know, those sketch chart graphic things. They love a bit of that. But in terms of actual useful work, it's uh, sadly lacking. Um, and the, the, the thing about Scottish education with all this is that, remarkably, Scottish education is actually, see for all this talk about how Scottish education is collapsing and stuff like that, it's bollocks, right? Scottish education is still very, very good. Given the option of all the places in the world that your kid could go to school, Scotland is, is genuinely not a terrible choice at all. Um, some what of about, what about the, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because what about the, the PISA results where things have went down? But also what about the general literacy and numeracy results where we know yeah. that young people aren't doing? And crucially for me, the thing that I really care about is that the educational attainment divide is continuing to get wider and not smaller. Well, see, even that, I mean, the education gap, if you measure it one way, it's getting smaller. If you measure it one way, it's getting bigger. It depends on your perspective. But um, there's always stats. There's always a stat. The thing is... Could that not be said in the other way, though? Like, there's the people um, that criticising John Swinney in the Scottish Parliament can always find a stat. Yeah, there's always going to be a stat. It's the thing about education. It's complicated. Always going to be a stat. The thing is, what we really need, we've ended up in Scotland, and this was... Right, so... Scottish education has been severely damaged by something that's happened now fa nearly five years ago. It was 2015, I'm sure. It was in the Wester Hills Education Centre, and it was when Nicola Sturgeon stood there in front of a room full of people, including a bunch of journalists, and did the judge me on my record speech. Uh. Because what that did was education is political, right? And it should be political. What we teach our kids is a political issue. Fine. 
education was also politicised in Scotland already, and that's a consequence of the fact that we have a devolved parliament with limited powers, but it controls your main pillar, some of these main pillars of society. It controls education, it controls health, and it controls the law. So these become the things that it gets judged by, and the one of them that's got the easiest set of metrics that you can start looking at is schools. So schools then becomes this hugely politicised issue already. And then the first minister walks out and essentially pins our political reputation to it. From then, we've been in this constant kind of cycle of everything always being about that, always being about the politics before the pupils. And that leading to this kind of sense of, um, I don't know, this sort of just sense of decline um, because it's impossible to actually it's, it's maybe changing now, but it's been impossible to have real, genuine, serious conversations about Scottish education. And it's been impossible to have conversations about the structure of Scottish education. And that's as much the case for talking about the things that are good and that have worked well as for the things that, that haven't. It doesn't help anybody to be in that, that situation. So, yes, there are big, massive structural issues in Scottish education. SQA needs to go. Education Scotland needs to split up. Yes, there should be a new national conversation, which was the thing that sparked Curriculum for Excellence. But that was you know, 20 years ago now, and right. 20 years is a perfectly reasonable time for an educational generation. We should have a new conversation about that. Mm. We should be talking about exams, but we can't do all of that while everything is so nakedly party political. See last year when the exams were cancelled? So that uh, so in March 2020, John Swinney announced that the 2020 exams wouldn't have gone ahead. Mm. What Swinney should have done at the same time is say, the 2021 exams also will not go ahead because we knew there was a massive risk of disruption. So we should have planned that. But we didn't know yeah, that we were... No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Like, we, we absolutely yeah. didn't. No, no, nobody knew. Because in March last year, we thought it was going to be a, a pandemic that was going to be three weeks long. No, we did but, not. Well, March last, by March last year, we were talking about the fact that you know, what if we never have a vaccine and stuff like that? We were already sitting thinking, you know, talking about second waves and everything. The, the situation was that it was impossible to guarantee 2021 exams would go ahead because the risk of disruption was high. If they had been cancelled then, then we would have had all of the last year to build a better system. So that, whereas just now what we have is the system teetering on the edge of falling apart because the SQA are refusing to do the job they're supposed to be doing and actually make changes, and because John Swinney is inexplicably silent on it. So part of this is planning, and, and, and if we had been in that a year ago when I thought that might happen, I thought it might spark a debate about qualifications in this country, many of which are pretty dreadful. I teach higher English, and it's pretty awful. Um, then, I, I, I nearly failed my higher English, so I agree that <laughs> higher English is a pretty awful qualification. Yeah, but, but none of it happened because every single, every opportunity that we've had to really, really plan ahead and really do things in advance was squandered up until the start of January when they started talking in better terms about the school closure thing. So we were going to start with blended learning. Everything's on fire though, isn't it? Like, no, give no, the no, 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 it's, it's vital to plan ahead when everything's on fire. This is the thing, right? See when the room's on fire. See, before you try and run through it, you look at the room and you see how you're getting out. Otherwise, what happens is you jump into a big fire. And that's what's happened here. You need but, to plan based on what you know and basically assume the worst. But like, I, I, feel, I feel like that, like what you're saying is that we, sh we need to have big fundamental questions and talk about Scottish education. Yeah, and that you were hoping that the pandemic would allow those conversations to take place. Yes. Um, but it hasn't. 
And I no, suppose that that's probably because there's been a pandemic. And like, it's it's one of these sort of things where you're, yeah, you're totally the, right. And and there's great disruption that can come real opportunity. But I suppose at the same time, there's also great disruption, which which can often block or halt making the... Uh, and things are very, very hard. But the problem is that the way we've reacted to the pandemic has been one of, in education certainly, has been primarily from the people in charge. The question they have asked at every turn has been, how can we protect the system? This, If we had stopped back then and thought, what we really need to be thinking about here is everything over the next six months to a year at a time, not what is our next decision. If we're, in the same way as you do when you're a teacher, right? If, if, the, if the government had thought like teachers, you know, we'd be in a, in a much, much better position with all of that. But with the exam results, the fear was, you know, the system might be harmed and we can't have that. With blended learning, the government bottled it in the face of these Zoomers at us for them. Uh, with the exams thing, that was political cowardice. We'll cancel National Five. We're going to keep doing the hires. Every teacher knew it wasn't going to happen, but couldn't actually plan for it not to happen because they were being told it was going to happen. So we had two months of this horrible twilight zone where we knew more than they did, but they wouldn't say. It's just been the same thing over and over again. And it's what happens when your view of education, I think, is fairly fundamentally managerialist, but also when you're just not really up for having that big fundamental principle discussion you know all the talk about like you know they probably didn't feel they needed it right because they're well, like this, if, this if what thing. you're saying they're coming from the place of actually it's all right yeah but when you spend all your this is the thing about it that, that's like, that, that, that's as well. it's not it's not when you see people saying that scottish education is a shambles and falling apart and standards are completely collapsed these people are political actors and they're acting in bad faith okay because it simply isn't true the data does the data does not show that this is, the, the, the data but you're calling for, is, how does that matter for all my, for a fundamental because, why then are you calling for a fundamental because how we education? things are fine in that <laughs> the system will currently tick over just about okay for doing what it's trying to do my argument would be that for example when you look at qualifications and it's actually a much bigger picture it involves universities but what we're trying to do is the thing we should be we should have that conversation about the system as it is just a, the education system is just a, it's just a machine you know it's just an engine you put stuff into it it powers it and stuff comes out the other side and right now the scottish education engine is it's certainly overworked it's certainly beyond capacity but fundamentally it is doing the thing asked of it people are leaving school people are leaving with qualifications they are going to college they're going to jobs they're going to universities you know, yeah, are there issues? Have there been points when, for example, yes, the literacy stats went down? Yes. Did they go down by some sort of massive astronomical amount that should have led to the kind of panic it did? No, because that, that kind of panic is never useful in education. But that doesn't mean that you can't identify long-term trends that show you where some of the problems lie. The thing about the SQA, that's not some knee-jerk reaction to, to one set of results. The thing with the SQA has been a long-standing problem. Education Scotland's a long-standing in principle theoretical problem. Um, John Swinney being the wrong guy for the job is a political issue. So all these things still matter, but it, it's important to maintain a bit of realism around all of that. I am not arguing that the Scottish education system is about to completely implode, and therefore we must rescue it from the evil gnats. But at the start, it's, it's, at the start, James, it sounded like what you were saying was yeah. the education system is about to it's implode. About to and we, we need to rescue because, it from John Swinney. Yes. What we, the thing is. It's nothing like, nothing even close to like what it should be or how ambitious it should be. 
but for doing the job it's asked to do just now, as I say, for, if all you want, if what you want to do is churn out results, then it's fine. And if what you and so that side of it's okay. In terms of the actual education kids get in schools, it's very, very good. Teachers, teachers in Scotland are genuinely, you know, internationally respected. And that sounds like yeah, but, a very good point to end on around <laughs> kids getting a good education in schools. They uh, do. I must emphasise this. They get a great education in schools in Scotland. Unless you're but, poor or go to a really poor school, in which case, don't, don't we want to close well, that educational attainment gap? Yes, but that's, that's the case. Really you, you don't, it's not an educational attainment gap. It's just poverty. It's the same everywhere. It's to slightly different degrees, but the fact is poverty has effects. Who are you? Yeah, yeah, but so, you know what? One of the things you can do to alleviate policy is provide really high quality education. Like one of the few things that has been shown that that supports people to get out of poverty is really brilliant, high performing education system. You know, um, we have a, a genuinely very good system. The teachers here are absolutely superb. They are, I think, often trying to do their jobs with one hand tied behind their back, though, and that is done by a flawed curriculum, a very, very, very poor support structure um, so, and a hyper-politicised culture. So James, in 30 seconds, um, what is your message um, to people listening um, that you want to, to get across about education in Scotland? Scottish education could be enormously better and if we had the guts that we think we do in this country and we're as radical as we think we are, then we would have a new national conversation about what education really means and we would have the guts to, unlike last time, actually challenge the way that we do exams and qualifications at the end of the process great thanks james um that is um sadly all we've got time for we've <laughs> we've used up nearly double of the time that we would uh, My apologies. Have. um but not not at all it's been a, a great conversation um i'm sure our listeners will love it james what's your twitter handle uh, at mr McEnany. Perfect. So if you want to keep up the conversation or debate with, with James, you can head over uh, to Twitter uh, to debate James. I'm sure they will love that. Well, that was an interesting discussion. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of feel a bit, um, I don't know. <laughs> was, well, we don't off, normally get that intense on the podcast, <laughs> do we? <laughs> First off, we should say thanks very much to uh, James for yes. what was a very illuminating uh, discussion. I, I thought we were going to talk more on, about teaching, but we, we spent a long time talking about um, the SNP and the Labour Party, which is... We did. And in some ways, that's a shame because I, I think we were really starting to get into the nub a bit of the discussion because, you know, the, the thing that I find difficult uh, sometimes about the, the education chat is that, like, there's this real contradiction of... Mm. You know, the Scottish education system is great. All the teachers are brilliant. There's no problem. We need to be talking up, not talking it down. But we also need massive reform. And actually, we need to cancel the SQA. John Swinney needs to resign. <laughs> the Education Scotland should be disbanded. And, and I find, I, I personally find that contradiction difficult because I don't mm. think that, well, maybe this is my opinions on this kind of stuff. And James says, I think that the natural place is someplace more in the middle, that actually there are lots of really good teachers. But there are also lots of crap ones. And like there's some really good things about Education Scotland and the SQA, and there's some things that really do need reform. Do you think and there are lots of crap teachers? Or do you think that um 
it's, it's more of this. I know we're getting back into this ed- education chat when we we were just coming back to to round off the podcast. But I at school when I was at school, I only remember two bad teachers at high school. Out of all the teachers I ever had, there was two really bad ones. One of them was an alcoholic that would go and drink in the cupboard, and the other one was Mrs. Dick, my English teacher, and I never liked English. So maybe she was a good teacher, and I just didn't like her. Um, is it that there's lot? Is it that there's <laughs> lots of crap teachers or is it that the system's bad well i think it's actually the system's bad i i think what what what, you're right there's not lots of crap teachers there are a couple of people that need support to be better um (laughs) let's be honest but you know like you though i think that anyone that's went through the education system and then sits and hears someone say that all the teachers in scotland are great knows that's not the case and as someone who's been a teacher and worked with teachers in Scotland, I can say that I've seen some of the most inspiring teachers that I have ever worked with alongside um, in Scotland. But I can also say that I have seen some really old-fashioned bad pedagogy. Mm. I've seen um, people who have not had the development they needed, people who have not been held to the account that they needed as well. So people who have become lazy, who um, haven't been observed for years, who mm. are just you know relying on old tried and trusted ways of getting through rather than looking at what's been developing with the most recent research and science. And I think that's what we need more of. I think we need a system which has more support and also, I'll be honest, more accountability as well. Mm. Well, that's enough for education from this week, but I'm sure our listeners will, will have lots to say on the conversation. Um, there's certainly, to me, it feels like there's more questions after this podcast than there are answers, um, but, but that's a good thing sometimes. Um, let's shift on to our recommendations because you've got a corker of recommendation this week, don't you? I cried. I just cried really, really ugly crying. Like, not like, oh, a little dignified tear running down my cheek. No, 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 no. It was like sobs. Like, I was kind of rocking back and forth. Um, And that's because I watched the last three episodes of It's a Sin in a Wonner. Oh, I mean, I've not watched it yet, but I've heard not to do that. It is one of the best oh so i haven't turned off my notifications i've got noises coming through it is one of the best pieces of art that i have seen it is devastating it is magnificent it is uplifting it is life affirming um and it is wonderfully beautifully gay and it is it's just a wonderful thing to watch and i and i would encourage everyone everyone to watch it whether you are lgbt no one lgbt person or actually are just interested in the human experience it's worth a go well i think i might watch it after your recommendation because that's definitely oh. um a powerful recommendation i was going to recommend madam secretary because that's what i've been binging on the past couple of weeks in my um recovery from covid but i'm actually going to recommend resistance bands um because well, I love it when we talk about these kind of things. Because I am um, I had my first PT session this week. Um a little half past twelve on a Tuesday afternoon, just half an hour. Um and we got um and, and they sent um these resistance bands and I've been sitting at my desk giving my arms a workout when I'm on calls and everything. Um and it feels good. Now my thighs from the PT session are like burning my thighs are burning it was definitely leg day i've never squatted so much in my life but it was you know it was really enjoyable 
and I've also, you know, got um, Apple Fitness. I'm going to be trying out the, the Apple Fitness 10 minute um, exercises on the electric bike that we've got. Um, well, they also do 20 minute ones and 30 minute ones. I, I've been a big fan of Apple Fitness. I started mm. Apple Fitness a couple of weeks ago, started doing it. The one thing I would say that you might want to think about investing in, though, to get the most out of the Apple, Apple Fitness is maybe an Apple Watch, Nathan. Mm. I was thinking about that, but. I think they're. I actually have an Apple Watch, you know, but it's it doesn't turn on anymore, which is oh. a shame. Because <laughs> it's it, they're really really good because it measures your metrics and you can mm-hmm. see like how you're doing on the screen and what your heart rate is and you can, it's it's just a very good system. Well, I might consider it for my birthday, um, which is coming up. I can't believe I'm going to be thirty-one in five months. I can't believe you're only thirty-one. I know. And I can't believe you think five months is coming up. Yeah, it is. I'd, I, well, I had my 30th birthday in lockdown. I was hoping to have my 31st birthday in Berlin to make up for the 30th birthday that was lost, but I don't think that's going to be possible. We can have a birthday walk to celebrate. Oh, well, it'd be lovely to see you in person, which also oh. feels like it's been a long time. Well, that's us for this week. Um, we'll hopefully get back next week or um, or the week after. Um, we're not going to leave it about the same for next week yeah we'll try next week um, we're not going to leave you as long again I do apologise for being off sick with coronavirus but my lungs are getting back um, to full capacity so I'll be able to talk um, at length with you Nick and some special guests great just what we've always wanted more talking from Nathan <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you all so much for listening we hope you have a wonderful week all right goodbye bye bye